Masechet Chagigad Daf Yod. We study today a fascinating and pretty well-known Mishnah that discusses the relationship between Torah Shebichtav and Torah Shebe'alpeh, noting that in some areas of Halakha, the Torah has a lot of pesukim about it, and the rabbis and Torah Shebe'alpeh fill in the gaps. But there are some areas of Halakha that the Torah hardly says anything about it, and uh, it's mostly Torah Shebe'alpeh. So let's see. Heter nedarim porchin ba'avir. Releasing one from vow. If someone makes a vow, they come to a betin and they say, you know, I didn't realize uh, uh, what I was saying when I made this vow. And uh, if the betin deems fit, they can release the person. All those laws, very complicated laws about uh, releasing vows. All these laws are not mentioned in the Torah or hardly mentioned in the Torah. And therefore, they are like flying in the air. They have no support within the, the Torah itself. I mean, there's a little bit of support, like a father or husband can uh, release uh, a wife or daughter from a vow, uh, but for, you know, just it, this is much more that anybody can go to a betin and release a vow after they made it. Uh, so these have um, basically no support from the Torah. It's all oral law. Hilchot Shabbat, Chagigot v'ameilot, hem kehadarim, the next category and it mentions Chagigot. That's why we talk. That's why it's here in Masechet Chagiga. So the laws of Shabbat, although the Torah says, you know, keep Shabbat, don't do Melacha, gives a couple of examples, but it doesn't have uh, a lot of detail about precisely what is prohibited on Shabbat. The fact that you have to bring a Korban Chagiga on, uh, on the Shalosh Regalim is not very explicit. And Me'ilot is uh, using something that is consecrated to the Bet HaMikdash and using it for your own purpose, uh, doing it by mistake. Then one has to bring a penalty, uh, the laws of Me'ilot, which are mentioned. So all these things are have a little bit of mention, uh, but the, the details are much, much greater than what the Torah says. So the analogy here is like they are like mountains hanging by a hair. Uh, so the, the, the Pesukim are just a hair and the laws around it, you know, Maser Shabbat, maybe one of the biggest Masechtot, uh, are like a mountain hanging from it um, because they have very little uh, scripture and many, many laws. Okay, this uh, phrase like mountains hanging from a hair, why does it say plural mountains? Uh, just you could say one mountain. And where, where do we ever see an, a, a, a picture like that of a mountain hanging from a thread? Like, what is this, you know, what is this referring to uh, anywhere? Maybe like Har Sinai is uh, hanging from a thread or something like that. Uh, well, there is uh, are some manuscripts that instead of a hair here have a chet, Kehadarim. Hadarim is a desert plant. And so a desert plant that is barely connected to the ground, its roots are just hanging by a thread. Uh, so um, my friend, Professor Michal Barashir Sigal, wrote a paper arguing that uh, the, uh, the original Mishnah is actually not mountains, but rather these desert plants, uh, desert plants uh, hanging by a strand. And she brings various proofs. And that, that image we do find in Navi and in Pirkavot. Uh, so that might be the original, although there are um, uh, probably most manuscripts do say the mountains. So either way, uh, the point is the same, um, that these have a little bit of support, but not a lot. Hadinin havodot v'teharot v'tumot v'adayot yesh lahen al-mashi ismochu v'hen hen kufet Torah. Civil law, that these have a lot of support in scripture, right? The whole Parshmishpatim, 
many, many laws about uh, stealing and uh, damaging avodah, all the laws about sacrifices, lots of pesukim about that. What is tahor, what is tameh, and prohibited relations. These have a lot of support in the Torah, and so these are the essential, uh, the essential body of Torah, although even here, the oral law adds a lot more detail, but nevertheless, there's a substantial amount of scripture. So this is a very self-reflective Mishnah um, the rabbi is just discussing about the <clears throat> different relationship between Torah Bichtav and Torah in different areas, and recognizing that sometimes, yeah, there's a lot of support, but sometimes there's very little support and maybe expressing some anxiety about that because when you have a lot of support, you know, we have a lot to stand on. When you have uh, 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 relatively less, well, that's what Midrash is all about, trying to connect the two. Um, and that's what the Gemara is going to get into. Okay, fascinating Tanya. So the Gemara begins with a Braita that argues a different opinion than the Mishnah and says, you said releasing vows are flying in the air. Not so, Rabbi Eliezer says, they have support in the Pasuk. And what's the support? It says the word Kiyafli twice. Now, it's actually saying it in different contexts. The first one is, if someone, yafli means to utter a word, to say something ex, you know, explicitly. And so if someone uh, would say that they vow themselves uh, their own worth, I'm going to donate my own my, myself to the Bet HaMikdash. I don't have to come and show up and donate my body, um, like uh, Shemuel comes and works in the Bet HaMikdash. You don't have to do that, but rather I pay an amount, a set amount of uh, what the person is evaluated as. Uh, so that's one type of vow. And then regarding Nazir also says, Kiyafli Lindor Neder, if someone explicitly says a vow that I will be a Nazir, then he has to be a Nazir. <clears throat> okay, but these words, you could have just said vow. You don't have to say this explicit vow. Uh, so why does it say this twice? Uh, so this is once uh, for uh, to make him prohibited. When he utters the word, it becomes prohibited. And the other one is to say an utterance for dissolution, that if the person comes to a Betin and says, listen, I didn't mean it, I don't recognize the consequences, they can actually undo the vow. And so that's why it says it twice, to hint to undoing vows. You can see that um, this is not the Peshat of these Pesukim. And uh, in, the, in a couple of minutes, the Gemara is going to, um, uh, to reject uh, this uh, logic. It's just really interesting that Nabi Eliezer is trying to say, oh, well, I have a support. And the support is based on, um, you know, this uh, uh, doubling of language in two different places that actually are needed in their own context. Okay, as we'll see. Rabbi Yoshua agrees and says, <coughs> releasing a vows does have a support. And he brings a different pasuk. This is a pasuk, first of all, from Tehillim. So already we see that it's not, it's not uh, <coughs> um, support in the Torah itself. A support from Navi is much weaker. The context is, Hashem says, um, B'nai Israel provoked that generation, provoked me for 40 years, meaning talking about the generation of the desert after Chet Aglim. And says, Nishpati Ba'pi, I swore in my anger that they will not come to my resting place, meaning to the land of Israel. <clears throat> and so uh, he's, uh, Hashem uh, uh, swore in anger 
oh, I swore in anger and I changed my mind. The point is, if someone makes a swear in anger and then they calm down, uh, then they say, oh, I didn't realize what I was, what was I talking about? And they can undo the vow. And so precisely because Hashem swore in anger, he was able to undo the vow. And there's a, a, a support for un- releasing vows. Okay, this also, this uh, um, derivation is problematic because actually Hashem did not change his mind. They, the whole generation did die in the desert. Um, he did change his mind, it's true, because at first he says, I'm going to wipe out the nation totally, and Moshe, you will uh, be the only survivor. I'm going to wipe them immediately. And Moshe argues, and then Hashem says, okay, fine. I'll, uh, they'll die over 40 years. That way they can have another uh, children and a second generation that will come in. So he does change his mind in that, but he doesn't change his mind about uh, 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 giving them, uh, uh, not, not allowing anyone to come into the land of Israel. And so, actually, it's probably talking about the opposite. I vowed in my anger, meaning I really meant it. And uh, the Gemara is going to reject this derivation in a minute. Releasing a vows, he agrees, also does have support in scripture, meaning he disagrees with the Mishnah, he agrees with the opinions above, but he brings a different Pasuk Shneimad. Um, anyone who is, has a willing heart can, should donate uh, materials to build the Mishkan. So Kurdish just says, Kol nediv, anyone who donates, anyone who vows has to donate. By adding liba, it means that only if your heart is into it. If you vowed and donated, and then you said, I, uh, I regret it, I don't want to, it's not, I don't have it in my heart, you can go and release the vow. And this is a hint, uh, a support that of releasing vows in the Torah. Okay, again, we're going to reject this. Now, Pasuk, again, from Tehillim, it says, I vowed and I fulfilled the vow to follow all of your mitzvot. So it sounds like, you know, he's patting himself on the back. Not only did I vow, I even fulfilled it. It sounds like there is a possibility of making a vow and not fulfilling it and still being okay. How could that be? It means you could release the vow. He didn't release his vow and he fulfilled it. So he gets an extra chazak baruch. Uh, but it's implying that one could theoretically uh, release the vow. Okay, so now we have all these derivations. And these are all from a baraita. These are all tanaim. Then comes an Amora. Amara Yehuda Amar Shemuel. I havei hatam amri lehu tidi adifa mididchu shneimar lo yachel devaro hu eno mechel aval acherim mochalin lo. Shemuel says, if I were there sitting with the Tanaim, I would have offered a better pasuk than all of them. And my pasuk from Bemidbar says, if a person makes a swear uh, to uh, uh, say make something uh, uh, prohibited upon himself. He may not nullify his words. So that's really explicit. You cannot nullify your words. You have to fulfill what you want. Now, actually, this actually says that you cannot undo it. But here's the derivation. He may not uh, undo his or nullify his words, but someone else can. Who is that? That's a betin. Uh, okay, really interesting derivation from the board that says don't release it. It means, yes, someone can release it. And says this is better because it's more explicit. It's right there in the Torah. That's Shemuel. Uh, a, a, a three generations later, after Shemuel comes and says, all of them have a refutation, all the Tanaim, not convincing. I can refute all of their derivations except for Shemuel because there's no way to refute this one. And now we're going to go through each one that we saw before. 
and show the, what's wrong with it. learned from the doubling of kiyafli kiyafli that there's a, a, an utterance to prohibit and another utterance to say, oh, I didn't mean it and undo the vow. He says, no, you, we need the word ayafli for its own context. The law of a nazir is that you have to utter explicitly, I want to be a nazir for 30 days. And it can't be based on a bet. For example, you see some two people, I'm walking with my friend. I see, we see a guy in the distance. Says, Who is that? It says, I think that's Mr. Friedman. He says, I'll, I, I, I want to make a bet. So he says, I'll be a nazir if it's Mr. Friedman. My friend thinks it's not. So he says, I'll be a nazir if it's not Mr. Friedman. And then, you know, he comes and it turns out either it is or it isn't. The law is neither of us is a nazir because we didn't say a clear utterance that I want to be a nazir. I made it dependent on something just in the context of a bet with a probability. That's not sufficient. I have to yafli, I have to say, yes, it's a, for sure, 100%, I want to be a nazir. So that's what we learned from that pasuk. And therefore, you cannot use that pasuk to say, oh, a clear utterance is two clear utterances. Uh, you're, this is too. This is too far-fetched. Your derasha. says uh, that Hashem swore that He would not let the generation of the uh, uh, Medaglim into Israel. So He didn't mean that. I, I swore in my anger and changed my mind. No, the opposite. I swore in my anger and I'm not changing my mind, right? No matter what you do, I'm angry about it. So it's the, uh, it means the opposite. You cannot derive releasing of vows from there. Either be Only if you're willing, willingly in your heart, uh, giving a donation to the Mishkan, which sounds like if you change your mind, as I am not willing, then you can un- release the vow. No, but maybe that pasuk is coming to uh, reject the opinion of Shemuel. Interesting. I mean, all this, all this is actually to defend Shemuel, Shemuel's derivation um, that shows Shemuel's the only one. But in order to do that, we have to reject uh, something else that Shemuel said. Um, so Shemuel said, if I uh, decide um, in my heart, I, I, I think uh, a vow. I think that you know what I, I'm. I, I want to. I'm going to give a uh, hundred dollars uh, to Sedaka, uh, even if I didn't say it. Um, uh, it doesn't doesn't work. Right? Only if I uh, thought about a vow and didn't say it, then it's not a vow. Um, so this would reject it and say, even if I didn't say it, even people who are just looking and saying, oh, they're going to build a mishkan, eh, you know, and I think to myself, I'm going to donate my jewelry. Even if you don't say it, you're still obligated to fulfill it. So maybe the words teach that uh, a vow is obligatory, even if one does not enunciate it, but only thinks it in his heart. So that pasuk could mean a totally different thing from what Rabbi Yitzchak says. If you're going to learn from that pasuk from Tehillim, like Hananiah did, that I vowed and I will fulfill it. It sounds like he's doing an extra thing by fulfilling it. Like there's a way to vow and not fulfill it. No, but maybe that is a teaching, has a different teaching of what Agida Marav says, that what's say I make a vow to fulfill some, a mitzvah that I have to do anyway, 
Um, like I want to give myself extra encouragement to put on tefillin every day for the next week. So I said, I'm going to make a vow that I'm going to put on tefillin every day. So Rav Gidel says, this vow sticks, even though I, we're already mushba'in mehar sinai, uh, even though we already vowed that we're going to keep all the mitzvot. So yes, but I can add another obligation to give myself extra encouragement. So that's what it means. Nishpati v'akayema nishmor kecha that I have um, made a vow even to fulfill a mitzvah that I have to do already. And that is a valid uh, uh, vow. Uh, so maybe it comes to teach me that and nothing about releasing of vows. So you see that Ava just proved that he can reject all of the other derivations, except for Shemuel. There's no refutation about that. And those are people say that um, better uh, one spicy pepper than a basket full of squash. Uh, meaning, even though pepper is very small, but it's really spicy and packed with flavor, uh, more flavor than a whole basket full of squash. And the nimshal is Shemuel, who is an, only an Amora and therefore lesser than the Tanaim, but he was able to give a source that was more powerful than all of the different opinions of the Tanaim that we saw before. Okay, and so anyway, this what this Gemara is doing is actually subversive. It's going against the Mishnah. The Mishnah said there's no source for releasing vows, and this whole Gemara says no. There's lots of sources. In the end, one stands strong, but nevertheless, this is one source that don't worry, uh, don't think that releasing vows is uh, is a light thing, right? You see the anxiety about if you say there's no source at all. Well, how can we how can we do this? No, don't worry, there is a source. Um, and uh, that's what the later rabbis arguing, or argue with the Mishnah about that. All right, next item in the Mishnah, Hilchot Shabbat, Bichtav Ketivan. This is what do you mean? The laws of Shabbat are hanging by a hair? Why, why do you say they're hanging by a hair? It's, they're written all over the place. Every, every uh, Chumash says something about don't do work on Shabbat. You're right. It does say Shabbat not to do Malacha, but the details, those are part of the oral law, have no basis in the Torah. For example, here's one detail that you wouldn't know from the Torah. If I uh, dig a hole on Shabbat, now if I dig a hole because I want the hole for a creative purpose, like I'm digging a hole so I can uh, uh, plant seeds, Right, so then that would be plowing. If I dig a hole in the ground because I'm gonna uh, build a build a house there and I'm building a foundation, so I want the hole. That would be building. So those those would be considered explicit in the Torah. But here's the case where I wouldn't know from the Torah if I build if I dig a hole because. I only, I want the dirt. I don't care about the hole. I don't want the hole. I'd rather it wasn't a hole. I need some dirt. I need some dirt. I made, I spilled something and I need dirt to cover over the spill. So then, even though I actually did melacha, nevertheless, uh, the melacha was not something that, um, that I wanted uh, the, for in and of itself. Now this halacha, that if I dig a hole just for its dirt, I'm patur, Whose opinion does that follow? Does everybody agree with that? We say, no, this would all may only be the opinion of Rabbi Shimon. 
who says in general in laws of Shabbat that if I do a melacha, not for its defined purpose, right? The defined purpose of, uh, of digging would be for building. So it's only if I do it in a way that will contribute to building, uh, would I be chayav. And here, although the action looks the same, someone looking from outside wouldn't know the difference, but I have in mind, I'm not doing this for the purpose of building, but only for the purpose of getting dirt. And so therefore he has a general rule at any melacha, any melacha they don't do for its defined purpose, patur aleha. Whereas the Biuda disagrees and Biuda says, if I'm doing an act, it doesn't matter whether I'm doing it for the defined purpose or for another purpose. If it's the same act, I would still be chayav uh, so that um, this uh, law then would be basically obvious for the Biuda. And so I only have an example for it to be Shimon, uh, but I would like to have an example for everyone. And so we say, no, yeah, don't worry. Even the Biuda would agree that that case of digging a hole for the dirt would also be patur because um, uh, in other cases of digging, I am doing a cre- I have a creative purpose. I want the hole. The hole is a good thing because I'm going to use it to put a, a pole in for a, to, to build something. Um, but here, in this case, I am destroying. And anytime I do a melacha, that is a destructive action because this hole is bad. People are going to trip on it. It's actually worse. Um, there, that is patur. So even a biyudah would agree that this case is patur, although he's there, they, they, uh, they're saying it for different reasons. Why exactly would be patur? Okay, so according to the Biudah, when the Mishnah says that the laws of Shabbat are like hanging from a hair, what is it referring to? Referring to, for example, that I'm only the Torah only comes to prohibit something that is creative, planned labor. Uh, but if it's not creative, if it's destructive, right, or to, according to the Bishimon, if it's not for the very purpose of it, then that is not included and that would be patur. So I wouldn't know this. I, I wouldn't know this from the Torah explicitly. Now, the rabbis actually do learn it because the word machshevet does come up regarding the Mishkan, that that is creative work. And the rabbis say, oh, there's a lot of parallels between the building of the Mishkan and the laws of Shabbat. They're mentioned back to back. Um, so therefore the rabbis uh, uh, compare them and learn this rule, but you need the oral law in order to derive this. You wouldn't know from, uh, you, you wouldn't know this from the Torah explicitly. And so this is one example of, yeah, I know the Torah says don't do melacha, but if I just had the Torah, I would have thought any action. And the rabbis come and uh, add this leniency that only if it's a creative action. Excellent. Now, the next and main topic for our purposes is Chagigot, Michtav Ketivan. And so we wonder about this. Chagiga, it says, right? Shalosh Pamim Bashana, and so on, right? It says, uh, I'm going to quote the Pasuk in a second. So, so the Pasuk that I would derive it from is this. Chagotem Oto, Chag. I should um, celebrate the holiday. And we've the way we've been understanding this until now is Chagotem with a Kurban Chagiga, that this Pasuk is commanding me to actually bring a sacrifice. Everyone who's coming to celebrate the holiday in Yerushalayim has to bring a Korban uh, Shilamim as a Chagiga. Uh, so that's what we said. It's explicit, isn't it? 
I said, no, it's not explicit. Because after all, um, the Papa said, Abaye, how do you know that this Pasuk means you have to bring a sacrifice? That the Zivicha, maybe it just means come and celebrate the festival. What do you mean celebrate? Come and have a nice time. You come with your friends, you come with your family, and you'll dance and sing and, you know, sing Piyutim um, and have a meal. But it's not talking about any specific korban that you have to, that you have to bring. Um, and so actually, that's the, that is the Peshat, right? Come and celebrate the holiday. Okay. If you're going to say that, that the word lachog just means to celebrate, then what are you going to do when Moshe is asking Paros, let my people go so that they can go and celebrate in the wilderness? Doesn't that mean they're going to go and make korbanot in the, in the desert? You're going to say also, it just means celebrate without sacrifices. You can't say that. If you say, yeah, yeah, that's what it is, what it means. Let's go to the desert so that we can celebrate things. Moshe continues and he says, well, later on, he says, no, we can't just go ourselves. We have to, we need to bring animals so that we can offer sacrifices and olot. So it's explicit that they're going out there to the desert in order to make sacrifices. We can't do it here because the Egyptians uh, uh, worship these animals. And so we have to go out to the desert. Uh, nevertheless, we say, um, uh, Maybe he means, uh, 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 what Moshe is asking for is that Hashem wants us to go and slaughter animals so that we can eat and drink. Or actually, this is regarding Chagiga. All right, so uh, forget the Shemot. Uh, when, when it says, uh, Yeah, you're going to go and eat and drink, and you're going to bring sacrifices, but there's no necessary sacrifice that you have to bring. It doesn't mean from here that there's a, a mitzvah that you have to bring this Korban Chagiga. It means you're going to eat and drink with whatever you come and eat and drink. So, no, it can't just be mean that you're bringing, you know, whatever meat that you have to happen to be bringing. Because in the context of the holidays, it says, do not leave over the fat of my festival offering. Uh, so that when you make, when you slaughter something, you can't leave the fat overnight. You have to burn it on the Mizbeach. Now, if you think it just means any regular meat, you know, uh, steaks and sandwiches that you happen to bring that are cholin. So is there, are there forbidden fats in regular meat and uh, a regular meal that you had? There's no forbidden fats. It has to be talking about uh, a sa- sacrificial meat. Okay. Okay, maybe this just means that any gift offerings, not of not an obligatory offering like Korban Chagiga, which is obligatory. Who said this is obligatory offering? Maybe it means any gift offerings that I decide I'm going to make a vow and I'm going to give it. If I do bring a sacrifice, then during the holiday, I have to make sure that the fat is not left overnight. We want to make sure that I'm not preserving it for a long time. I want to be eating it. Make sure you're eating it on the holiday. And that's what it means that the fat of the offerings during the holiday you should not leave over for the next day, but burn that night. Well, according to that, so then the prohibition of leaving over fat to the next day would only apply on a holiday. But if it was a non-holiday all year round, then you would be permitted to do that. 
That can't be because it's a pasuk. Pasuk in Baikra says you have to have a fire burning on the Mizbeach um, all night. And what am I going to use it for? I'm going to use it to burn. I don't make sacrifices at night, but it's to burn the leftover fats. And so therefore I have a pasuk. So why would I need another pasuk to tell me specifically about the holiday? No, it's, it could still not be redundant. The pasuk says all year round, there's misvata said to burn the fats. On the holiday, are we adding a lota said, don't leave it over until morning. And so I could still need the pasuk for regular uh, voluntary offerings. And that's not necessary. That's talking about an obligatory korban chakiga. And we challenge that. But I already have another pasuk that gives me a negative prohibition and says, don't leave over anything until the morning. So this pasuk is redundant. And we say, no, still not redundant. Maybe have all of them together to say that if you leave over fat then and, and it's on the holiday, then you'd violate two negative commandments and one positive commandment. So from all this, we end up having no derivation that there is a positive, that there's a commandment to bring a korban chagiga, right? If I want to bring uh, uh, offerings and enjoy the holiday, I can, but there's no source for an obligatory korban shalamim of chagiga. So after all that, we rejected that pasuk, but here we do find a derivation. The word midbar occurs twice. Um, this is now back to uh, the Exodus story. Moshe says, let us go so that we can celebrate in the desert. And back to Amos. We saw this pasuk a couple of days ago. Amos said, did you ever bring me sacrifices in the wilderness, house of Israel? Meaning, do you think I care about sacrifices? I don't need them. Um, uh, but anyway, it says here explicitly, zevachim, umincha, zevachim, in the desert. And so now we're comparing the two words. Just like in Amos, is clearly talking about sacrificial animals. So too, when Moshe is asking for, to go and celebrate, he's talking make, making sacrificial animals. And therefore, also in our context of the holidays, uh, it must be taught, when it says go and make a chag, it must be talking about sacrificial animals. And therefore, that is the source. That yes, we have to not only uh, come and just uh, celebrate the holiday, but it has to be with a specific sacrificial animal that is an obligatory one. Okay, so finally, we have a source. So so why do you call this hanging from a mount, hanging from a thread, if in fact we have a derivation? This is non-standard derivation. We don't learn word, learn words of Torah from the words of Nevi'im. You just learned it from a, from a Pasuk and Amos. This is uh, this is just a mnemonic. This is just a, a weak support. Uh, if you have to use a pasuk in Navi and not in Chumash, um, and so therefore you see that this is just hanging from a thread, barely. And basically, everything we know about Korban Chagiga is from the oral law. Excellent. And now, next item on the list is Merilot. Um, uh, uh, misusing for oneself, misusing is a consecrated property. Miketav Kitivan, hold on. That's mentioned in the, in the Pesukim. It's right there in Vayikra chapter five. There's a whole section about uh, if uh, one uses something that, that belongs to uh, uh, Kodesh and the consequences of it. 
Amar Ami Bar Chama Lanzechel Alichetit Nan. Oh, when the Mishnah says that these laws are suspended by a hair, it's talking about some of the details. And here's an example of a detail that you wouldn't know from the, just reading the Torah. Let's say I have some coins and I forgot they are consecrated coins, but I didn't, I didn't realize because it only applies if I did by mistake, if I did it on purpose, and I don't, uh, I, um, then this, uh, that's even worse than me'ila. So I did it by mistake and um, I have these coins I forgot and I tell a messenger, I say, hey, listen, can you take these coins and go buy me a shirt? And so he goes and does that. If he goes and buys me a shirt, then I'm the messenger, I'm the sender. So I caused him to do it. So I'm the one that is responsible and I have to pay the penalty. But let's say the messenger goes, instead of buying me a shirt, he buys shoes. That's not what I asked him to do. So then the messenger is the one who is, uh, who is liable, he's the one that has to bring the, uh, the, the, the penalty because he acted on his own. I told him to buy a shirt. He didn't buy a shirt, he bought shoes. So therefore he is responsible. Now, all this, I would not know from Pesukim. Uh, and so therefore this is part of the oral law. And this is the part that's hanging from a thread. Now we just question this law. Hold on, even if he went and bought a shirt, he did exactly what I asked him to. Why, um, uh, why should I be liable, right? He's the one that sinned. I should be liable, right? In general, we say, there's no uh, agency. You can't send the messenger to do a uh, sin. If I ask someone, hey, could you do me a favor? Can you eat this cheeseburger for, for me? Can you go rob a bank for me? Right. If he does any of these things, he's the one that made the sin because he did it and he is liable. If just because I asked him to, no, I is no, there's no such thing as having someone do a sin for you. That's a general rule. And so here too, even if I if I give him this money and he goes, and even if he buys a shirt as I asked him, the messenger should be liable, not me. And that's what we're talking about, because this law is different from most other laws. And in he, and here, the messenger is the one that the, or the sender is the one that's liable and not the messenger. This is something that I would not be able to know. It's a unique law to Me'ila that's not said in the Torah. And that's what the Mishnah is referring to. Okay, Amarava, Omai Kushya, Rava says, hold on, what kind of question is this? Dilma Shane Merila di Alfa, Het Het Metiruma. Hold on, this is explicit in the Torah. I have a, I have a derivation um, that agency works in Merila, and therefore the messenger is liable and not, not the, the, the sender is liable and not the messenger. And because I learn a Gezerah Shava, the word Het. Appears here, it says the word chet regarding me'ila. It also says the word chet um, uh, in regarding teruma. Lot chet, but you shouldn't misuse the teruma and cause a chet. The pesukim mentioned here are, are mistakes. Um, these are the correct ones. Um, <clears throat> and so I learned chet chet b'teruma, just like ma'atam shilchos adam kimotav kan shilchos adam kimoto. Just like in teruma, let's say I'm not home and I can't offer, I can't separate teruma. 
I can ask someone, can you separate the Teruma for me? And so agency works. And so I derive from there that agency also works regarding me'ayla. If I send consecrated cords with someone else, then I, the messenger, I, I, the sender, am responsible and not the messenger. So actually, this does have a derivation in the Torah. So it's not hanging from a thread. Adds another twist to the story. Let's say I have these coins. I forgot that they were consecrated coins and I send them with the messenger, go buy me a shirt. After he leaves, I say, oh no, those coins were consecrated. I shouldn't have done that. In that case, I now am no longer inadvertent because now I know that they are uh, they are um, consecrated. So I am no longer liable for me'ilah. And at this point, I don't even want him to go because they're consecrated. So in this point, the agency is canceled. The messengership is canceled. And now he's acting on his own, even if he buys a shirt. And so this poor messenger, what did he know? How would he, how would he have any idea that uh, he's doing something wrong. And nevertheless, now the messenger is liable because um, I realized that, that uh, they are consecrated. And this is a law that would not have any derivation, even if I accept that Turumah derivation uh, here. Uh, this is a unique law, and that's what the Mishnah is talking about. Uh, Rav says, no, no, this is not... This is not an, an interesting law. There's nothing special about this. This is like a standard case of uh, someone uh, who finds some coins and he doesn't realize that they're sacred and misuses them. The messenger is the, doing the same thing. Once I realize that they are uh, uh, consecrated coins as the sender, then I am canceling my that the messenger, right? Even though I, I don't have cell phones, so I can't tell him. But so I, I'm, I'm canceling. So I'm not, I'm not involved anymore. He, he has coins and he doesn't know that they are not consecrated and he's using them for now his own purpose, because he's not actually acting as a messenger anymore. That's like a stand, any standard case where a person has some coins and he misuses them. And so that person is liable. So actually, there's nothing interesting about this. says, here, I have to find some case that I could not derive from the standard principles of the Torah. And that's why it would be an oral law hanging from a thread. So what is his case? If I go and take um, there's some stones that are de- dedicated to the to the Mishkan or to the Bet Mikdash, right? They're going to use them. Either someone just dedicated some stones, or they're actually going to use them to build. And I come and pick one up, or a, a beam. I take a beam that was consecrated and I pick it up. I do not violate Meila. Because, oh, I just pick it up. Maybe I'm just moving it around. Um, uh, however, if I give it to my friend, then I'm doing something with it. And then um, uh, I, I am liable. My friend is not. Like, this is like, you know, if I pick something up in a supermarket and carry it around and didn't pay for it yet, I'm still not, uh, still not shoplifting because I'm just walking around only until I walk out the door with it. 
or I sell it to someone else, right? Or I eat it um, and without paying for it, then I am liable. So, so too here. Now, now we wonder about this. If it's just about picking it up and carrying it, not actually changing it or installing it in your house. So then what's the difference if I pick it up and walk around with it or my friend picks it up and walks around with it? Logically, we should both be the same and we should both be patur because we didn't do anything with it. So, and this is a chidush that you wouldn't know from the Pesukim themselves, that even though if I pick it up, I'm not liable. If I hand it over to my friend and he picks and he moves it around, then he is liable. That's Rabbi Shea's case. But now we challenge that one too. No, maybe we could follow Shemuel. Regarding that case, Shemuel says that this is true. When is it true that if I pick it up, I'm okay, but uh, if I give it to my friend, it's not okay? That's only talking about where the, about the treasurer of the Bet HaMikdash. The treasurer, because he's the treasurer, he can pick things up and move them around because yeah, that's his job. It's like you know the manager of the supermarket is allowed to take things out of the store, into the store. He's making deliveries. He's accepting shipments. He's always moving things around. So if the manager puts something in his car that he didn't pay for, that's not shoplifting. Only if the manager goes and gives it to a friend for free, then he's stealing. Right? So to hear uh, the law, uh, the, the, this law applies only to the temple treasurer. If a regular person would go and pick up a consecrated stone, stone they would be liable. And so um, there's no chidush here, uh, according to Shemuel. So rather, we'll talk about the next case that's mentioned over there. Interesting law that says, if I take a, I steal a stone, right? I take a stone that was consecrated. Okay, and then not realizing. And I put it, I build it into my house. I don't, I violate me'ilah yet until I go and use the house, even for a second, even only if it's a, a peruta's worth of rental. Um, uh, then only when I use it, then. So building it in is okay, uh, not liable, only using it. Now, since I, I changed the stone because I didn't just move it around, I actually built it into my house, right? So what's the difference if I live there or not? I should be liable because I built it into the house. Now, finally, we have a good example of something that there's no way I would derive from the standard uh, rules in the Torah. This is an unusual exception. And this is an example of something that is hanging by a thread. But even this we reject. Rav, on that case, explained it as follows and says, Rav says, this is an example where I took the stone. I didn't, I didn't nail it into the house. I didn't put anything on top of it. I didn't glue it on. All I did was rest it on top of a window as a windowsill. And so therefore it's not actually connected to anything. So I didn't make any change in the stone. And that's why I'm not liable by just placing it there. I'm only liable when I actually go and live in the house and now I'm using it for personal benefit. That's when I am liable. So you see, according to Rav, this is a regular standard case. It just make, it makes sense according to all the normal rules that I could derive from the Torah and so this is not an unusual case that's uh, hanging by a thread. So you know what? We're going to go back to this case of Rava. 
that is talking about the, the, um, uh, someone who sends a messenger. And so it's a case where I found, I got some coins. I thought they were okay. I give them to the messenger. I say, go buy me a shirt. After he leaves, I remember and say, oh, wait, these were Hekdesh coins. And in that case, the messenger is liable. And over there, so beforehand, we said, wait a second, that's like a regular case. The messenger has coins and he misused them. That's, so that's the standard case. And now we say, no, it's not a standard case. And a standard case is when I have some coins around, I forgot, but I should have remembered because I know that, uh, I know in, in the back of my mind somewhere, I know that I have uh, a sacred coin somewhere in the house. And so I should have uh, thought, been more thoughtful and said, oh, these might be the coins. And so I better not use them. And so even if I make a mistake, it's still bishogeg. I am, some, I am somewhat liable for that mistake because I should have known better. But that law would only, only make sense if it's the homeowner actually going and buying it. The messenger, uh, so the homeowner should have UNA, should have checked. But here in this case, the, me- the, the messenger, he had no idea that I even had any consecrated coins ever. So he is, uh, I would have thought, according to standard rules, that he is um, a case of honest. He had no way of even knowing to think about the possibility of such a thing that these coins are um, could be hektesh and therefore had no responsibility at all. So according to the standard rules of what I would derive from the Torah, the messenger should be patur and not have to bring the, not be liable as me'ila. And this is the chidush that yet he is liable. And this is the example of the Mishnah when it says this is like a mountain being suspended by a hair or like a desert plant being suspended by a hair. I think what we see uh, throughout this Talmud is that the Gemara, I think, is trying to minimize the amount of oral law that's not in the Torah. um, Because if you just take the Mishnah face value, it sounds like most of the most of the halacha has no basis in the Torah. And uh, the Mishnah does seem to mean that. And so this is, the, this is difficult. It'll undermine the authority. And so what the Gemara is doing is, first of all, saying, wait, you know, some of, the, some of these things do have. And you know what's being suspended by a hair? Only this tiny little uh, uh, case that never comes up, right? A case within a case of uh, 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 within this plot. That's the thing that we would not, would not know from the Torah. But really, most standard cases we can derive from the Torah one way or another. And so don't worry, right? Most of the halakha does have some basis. It's only a few small things that, um, that don't. So it's very interesting how the Gemara is, uh, it seems to be knowing what it's doing, especially with those pisukim it brings that, um, you know, look like standard derashot. And then the Gemara says, no, no, none of these are, none, none of these are convincing derashot. Um, so I think the rabbis were very insightful and knew the peshat of the pisukim and knew exactly what they were doing and, uh, and uh, wanted to uh, present the majority of the oral law as, yes, based in the Torah against any, uh, any, who, uh, any critics who would say uh, not so, although they must acknowledge that there are some areas of halakha which um, uh, do have things that are only oral law and uh, cannot be derived from the written law. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.